0: Troubling news out of Oregon this week. Also, time to go back down the Mount Rushmore well and answer all of your emails, all of that on this episode of The Audible. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Vandell, joined by Bruce Feldman. And, uh, Bruce, this may be a first. We're going to do an all mailbag episode.
1: Well, not entirely all. No, all. Let's get into it then, if that's what you're doing.
0: As always, you can send your emails to the pod at gmail.com. I mean, this first one, we were going to probably address this topic anyway, but since we have an email, let's just use that. It's from Max in Bend, Oregon. Hello, Bruce and Stewart. As a Duck fan living in Oregon and a regular Audible listener, I was prepared for the, quote, never worked this hard in the weight room articles to riddle my Twitter feed all offseason. <laughs> I realize now that the jokes we made about the uh, puke bucket stories kind of took a, a twisted turn this already this offseason. So, yes, he says I was prepared for those, but I did not expect three Duck football players to be hospitalized from grueling workouts and a suspended strength coach. Is this story unprecedented? Do you recall seeing a story ever like this one? And what do you expect from Willie Taggart and his staff overall?
1: Uh, you know, when I first heard this story, and I think it was, I don't know if I was online when it really blew up, but then, you know, when I started to see some traction on it, it reminded me back of an incident that happened at Iowa. And I want to say it was maybe five years ago. Yep. And there were more players who who had health issues. Right. And, um, you know, it's a, it is a serious deal when you have guys go to the hospital. I think I, as I noticed kind of the fallout from it, you know, a couple of the people I follow have Oregon ties. Uh, one of the people I follow who I think does a really good job in the media is a, is an NFL player, Jeff Schwartz, who's a Chip Kelly, era offensive lineman. And he was kind of sparring with some, some Oregon fans who were the fans. Part of it was these guys were out of shape. They needed to toughen up. And, you know, three out of a hundred, they, you know, is, is not a big number. Uh, They pointed to some comments, I guess, from some, some other Oregon players talking about it. And he was like, no, this shouldn't happen. And, you know, we had a tough team. We didn't have these kinds of, of health issues. Um, What kind of
0: like, I, you know, we are used to like people defending their school amidst the worst scandals. How demented do you have to be? to say, oh, those guys went to the hospital. I have no sympathy for them. They should have been in better shape.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think a lot of times you'll have people who who will say it because they don't care about, it's just all to them is about the results of the team and they're disgusted by the end product of the team. And it's like to them, the end justifies the means at this point.
0: So let's give the details for people who aren't aware. Uh, Three players went to the hospital with rhabdo. And you know what? I had never heard of it before, that Iowa situation, but it did happen at Iowa. And it is a full-blown syndrome where soft soft muscle tissue is broken down with leakage into the bloodstream of muscle contents. And it happens from over-rigorous exercise and, in particular, after having been, you know, Like this came, this started when they came back from a long break, right? So you go from maybe not working out or not working out as much as you usually do to, and I'm going to describe these workouts now. Uh, They were described, this is from uh, the Oregonian uh, or from Oregon Live, which, so the workouts were described by multiple sources as akin to military basic training, with one said to include up to an hour of continuous push-ups and up-downs. An Oregon official disputed a claim that some players had passed out, saying the training staff did not see any players faint. Another UO official said later that athletic trainers were available to those who needed treatment during the workouts. Um, Some players complained of discolored urine, which is a common symptom of rhabdo after testing. Others were found to have highly elevated levels of creatine kinase, kinase, an indicator of the syndrome. Okay. Okay. Uh, It can be triggered after a spike in intensity of an athlete's workouts and by overexertion during those workouts. So it's rare. Uh, The Iowa one is cited in this story. Uh, That was actually 13 players hospitalized, eight volleyball players from Texas Women's University in 2011. So Oregon acted pretty fast in response to this. The strength coach was suspended for a month. The strength coach came with Willie Taggart from USF. Uh, No, this is not normal. Uh, this is, I mean, you, you tell me you're the weight room guy. Doesn't an hour of continuous up, down seem very extreme.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, some of the stuff that has come up about this and John Canzano, who's a good, who's a, I would say good columnist, but he's more than that. He's a you know radio host as well in Oregon. Um, and he wrote about it after, after the work of Andrew Greif who's the Oregon beat writer who had, who had, you know, reported this initially uh, was talking about Chip Kelly and Chip Kelly bringing on the Navy SEAL training. Now this is not uncommon now. Now it may have been early on when Chip was there, you know, eight or nine years ago, but I know of a bunch of schools that will bring on for a couple of days um, military experts who a lot of what they do is actually really designed to foster, to, to reveal who's leaders, who are the leaders on the team, but also to try to build leadership in the locker room and also develop camaraderie and th- those things and some of the exercises. So I don't know, you know, I think people are going to, you know, stretch this in all different ways to fit their arguments. Um, you know, I, I'm going to go back to something that I remember seeing the offensive line, the old offensive lineman from, uh, from Oregon Schwartz had said, Somebody had tweeted at him. Only thing I'm upset about is a S&C, strength and conditioning coach getting suspended for doing his job. And Schwartz's response to that, which I think is there's there's something to be said for this. That is what's wrong. That's not doing your job. Your job is understanding how to push your players, but also when to reel it back in. And you know, look, I, I think that that's the part where I don't think anybody realistically, you know, wants players to 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 get pushed to the limit where they should get hospitalized for this. I mean, that is excessive. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, that's a, that's a good thing for Oregon. I don't think it's certainly anything, you know, an image Willie Taggart is going to want to have around his program because ultimately, you know, remember these coaches are out on the road recruiting and you're going to be in, in parents' homes, you know, for, to, to recruit their kids. And ultimately the biggest things that, that they're going to want is yes, they want you to develop their sons, but also
0: they want them to be safe.
1: They want them to be educated, to get a degree, but they also want you to take care of them. And there's enough horror stories of things going wrong. And so, you know, I think, and I wasn't there, but this sounds like something where it clearly crossed the line in a place that it shouldn't go. And hopefully it's a warning signal. Um, You know, it's another warning signal uh, of some of the ills of this kind of stuff. Cause we had heard, years for years and years about mat drills and different things where you know there was a very you know a legal case that happened at UCF when George O'Leary was a head coach you know there was a death at FSU
0: there was a death just the other
1: day sadly
0: northern Michigan
1: that one I mean go ahead Stu I'll let you finish then I'll bring something else up
0: well the northern Michigan player uh you know I don't know the full details but he died during a morning workout
1: yeah, Stu, uh, when I saw this story, this latest death of a college football player, it reminded me, Luke Cyphers is a great investigative reporter I worked with at ESPN, and he had done uh, work investigating the, the deaths of Rashidi Wheeler as a player, obviously you'd remember, Corey Stringer, the great Ohio State offensive lineman who passed away when he was the Vikings, and Steve Beckler, who I think was a baseball player, and some of those, you know, sometimes some of these things come back to supplement use. And some of the things that these guys are taking that could impact them as well. Now, I'm not saying that that's directly related to what happened at the tragedy with the northern Michigan player. No,
0: in fact, the northern Michigan player, his mom uh, said after they did an autopsy, and it appears he had an enlarged heart that we never knew about.
1: Yeah, but I think there's a lot of factors that go back into this. And while people think, okay, well, this is, you know, I've been in a lot of, a lot of, college weight rooms and everything. And I know some of the, some of the supplements they're provided, that doesn't mean everything they get or intake is coming from the strength coach. So there, there's a lot of gray area that's, that's at play here.
0: Um, in terms of the last part of that question about Willie Taggart, I mean, you know, obviously this is not the way you want to do it, but he's a Harbaugh disciple. And I think, you know, when you think about Oregon football, I think um, there's been a, fair way or not, there's a perception that they got soft, and he's going to, you know, he's coming in with that Harbaugh mentality of, we're going to turn this into the most physical team in the country.
1: Yeah, and it's, look, it's not like Oregon didn't, didn't like, you know, people can say, oh, now the team was soft, or there was a sense of entitlement, or all the things that you hear about when a program that had been successful starts to backslide. I mean, this was still a tempo team. It's hard for me to believe that they were so woefully out of shape.
0: That's not what I meant. I meant that
1: uh, you don't – like, if you were
0: describing teams and their styles, physical is not the word that would come to mind with Oregon, rightly or wrongly. You thought of them as a finesse, blur offense team.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, I think the, the term finesse is, gets thrown around, you know, in football circles probably more than it needs to be. I mean, I find it hard to believe that some of the guys, like DeForest Buckner, was, was not a finesse player. You know, some of these guys they had – I mean, was Royce Freeman a finesse player?
0: Well, let me ask you this. So Stanford, kind of its M.O., right, for several years there was they're the that they, they could be successful because nobody else in the Pac-12 was doing what they were doing. Where everybody else is spreading it out, we're going to be fullbacks and tight ends and whatnot. Okay, UCLA started going in that direction last year. Washington's obviously going in that direction with Peterson. Now it would seem maybe... I'm not sure because the offense he had at USF with Quentin Flowers was definitely a a spread it out offense. But maybe that's the direction he wants to take Oregon. Um, You know, it is college football is a copycat kind of sport. It seems like everybody's now trying to be that kind of team in in the Pac-12, especially in the Pac-12 North.
1: I really think it comes back to this. Whatever you do can work, but it's who executes the best and who has the best players to execute it. I mean, I I think sometimes we go so far down the scheme and this, you know, trick them kind of road. But ultimately, it's like if you execute well and you have good players and you develop good players, you'll win. And if you don't, you know, you won't. I mean, I I think it comes back to that. Like, you know, I see this from time to time where people go, oh, well, you can't win a national title that way. Well, you know what? Almost nobody wins a national title. It's like the same six or seven schools.
0: Yeah, Jim Mora had to walk back that, that spread comment. Um, well, he said no team ever won the national title running the spread, and then he tried to clarify that.
1: Here's the here's the issue with some of that. And this is maybe a little soapboxish, but and this isn't really directly a, sh- a shot at, at Mora, but you know, I think when he sees spread, he may in his mind think spread means means air raid offense.
0: Everybody runs spread now. I, you know, I don't watch the NFL very much, but I watch the Packers Cowboys game. They're both running the spread, like everybody has elements of that now
1: the Patriots incorporated stuff that he has done mm-hmm. he's been saying it for years and I just think you know people will you know pick and choose what they say wants to work and whatnot I mean you know like again what I said is if you have if you have really good players and they execute you're gonna win and if you have a fancy scheme, with either shitty players or a scheme that's, you know, that you don't have guys who either buy in or get it, uh, you're going to struggle, you know? I mean...
0: You are kind of on a, in a soapbox mood this morning, I'm noticing. Are you just kind of ticked off in general?
1: No, I'm not. I don't think so. All um, right. <laughs> you're reading too much into into that, but... All right, well,
0: let's move on to, uh, you know, we gave our Matt Rushmore's earlier in the week, our four players... Each uh, from the last 20 years, Will in Denver, I'm surprised neither of you considered Andy Katzenmoyer or Charles Woodson for your Mount Rushmore college football players. And yes, those guys would technically fall into the 20-year window.
1: Charles Woodson is definitely one that I think deserved to be con- considered in there. Andy Katzenmoyer was an interesting story for me in that like, I remember covering him early on. And he was part of that Ohio State team that, that played Arizona State in the first Rose Bowl I went to. Um, you know, he was a much hyped, you know, big physical linebacker who had a bunch of, you know, big highlight hits. Uh, you know, then he had his academic, I don't want to call it, I don't know how to even frame it. Because it was like, you know, his academic issues or whatever they were, were kind of publicized in in Sports Illustrated, I want to say.
0: Yeah, it was very famous, very famous cover. Controversial at the time. Where he was on the cover because they said Ohio State's their preseason number one team. Asterisk if Moyer makes the grade, hmm. he had to take from, I mean, it was very public that he had to take, you know, a certain number of classes that summer to get eligible. And he was taking like ballroom dancing or something like that.
1: Uh, if I was going to pick a linebacker, the best linebacker that I've seen in the, in the 20 plus years or whatever, the first one I would probably pick would be Patrick Willis. And he was a great linebacker on a really bad team. He had four different position coaches. I saw Patrick play a, you know, half a season with a, cat, with a club on his, on his, on his arm. Um, you know, he was a fantastic player, and he proved to be that in the NFL. Uh, I thought Dan Morgan was a great college linebacker in Miami. I was, he had a lot of success in the NFL before concussions, I think, cut his sh- career short. But I think those guys were, were much better players than Andy Katzenmoyer was.
0: Katzenmoyer's classes were music, AIDS, awareness, and golf. By the way, I think if that came out today, nobody would even bat an eye.
1: No. Um, the guy, all right, so I got a couple of names for you. I'm glad that somebody brought up Charles Woodson because I saw that a few times. There's a name, so, oh, another one of our uh, uh, listeners had pointed out to me on Twitter. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, yeah, that guy was was fantastic. And it's a shame. Like I wrote a bunch about him and it's... Scooby Wright. No, sorry, Scooby. You know I love you, but no. Um Michael Vick. Yeah. Michael Vick was awesome at Virginia Tech. I mean, he changed that program. You know, he had two spectacular seasons. You know, the year he he went to the he led Virginia Tech to the national title game against Florida State. I mean, I thought he was a remarkable talent. He was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, you know, he had a very star crossed, controversial pro career. With some you know some really big highs and a lot of obviously big lows. but he's somebody I think you know would fit in that window statistically because he was in a system that wasn't going to put up numbers to say like Marcus Mariota did. Um, but I think he was somebody and then another name and maybe this guy's on the cusp of that maybe too far out, but was a great college player and I was surprised you didn't bring him up, which was Tommy Frazier.
0: Well, he was outside the window barely, right 95.
1: That was his last year? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I know Woodson played in the you know in that range. Uh, anybody else you had more time to think about? Say, oh, I could see this guy there or not?
0: I'm okay with my Kellen Moore decision, but I do wonder if I should have given that spot to either Mariota or Watson. And, you know, again, I think you and I approach the exercise very differently. I think you are literally trying to figure out who are the four best players in, in the time, whereas I'm looking more at, like, larger career, legacy. I mean... I don't know if Tebow was one of the four best players of the last twenty years. But there's no question he was. He left the biggest. He had the biggest. One of the four biggest impacts on the sport during those twenty years. So, you know, I, I I would love to see somebody said this. And hey, if any of our writer friends are listening right now,
1: Andy Staples, by the way, weighed in with me. Did he? Yes, and with respect to Andy, I hope he doesn't mind that I'm going to share. I some. would
0: love to hear everybody's list because I think they would all be very different.
1: Okay, so I don't know. This may be this may violate guy code or some way by me doing this, but so this was Andy, me and him having a back and forth, and if he never speaks to me again, I will I will miss him. You that. really
0: think he's gonna be ticked that you're reading his Mount Rushmore on the air?
1: No, probably not. Um, I guessed your Mount Rushmore before you said it. So I wrote back seriously. He goes, "Yes, as soon as I, I, as soon as you said too defensive, I knew it would be Sue, Sue, and Reed. Maybe I missed Mariota. Who would your four be?" I asked him, and he wrote Newton, Young, Sue, and Reed.
0: Wow! So you guys are like lockstep. The only thing I'm surprised about there, like I, I was actually listening back to the podcast, and I think you make a great case for Ed Reed for sure, but it's just surprising me that two people would identify him and specifically him among all the great defensive players to come through. You know, I saw somebody nominate Sean Taylor.
1: Sean Taylor had some great moments, and he he was like kind of a wow player. Ed Reed was the best leader Miami's had. He made those plays. I mean, Sean Taylor, I remember there was a game against Florida State. I want to say he could have picked off like five passes. He did some spectacular stuff, but um, I I just thought that that was the difference. I mean, Sean Taylor had way more athleticism, obviously bigger, more physical, runs faster.
0: So let me throw out a name then for you, if you're talking, because you were very intent on having a DB. What about Jalen Ramsey? I think he's a great player. I mean... Great player, national championship.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, but you know who won that national championship? Jameis. Right. I mean, Jameis was the star of that show. I mean, Jalen Ramsey is a great player, just like Eric Berry was a great player. Right. Uh, would you put... And again, uh, this is these guys are lumped together a little bit because of, of era... And they both led teams. You know, Florida State hadn't been as down, the, like Clemson had been kind of down. But uh, I don't know, Deshaun. I don't see put the program on his back because that team is loaded with NFL talent too. But
0: so you're say, I mean, you're saying Deshaun gets first dibs over Jameis, and I don't disagree.
1: Just I mean, look, I think the teams Deshaun beat were better than the teams Jameis beat. I mean, Jameis beat that Auburn team, right? Right. I don't think that was like you know I. Great, great defense or anything. I mean, look, I don't want to take anything away from Jameis Winston. I thought he was a really terrific college quarterback. I also
0: still have a little bit of a problem with two seasons. Like, when you said Vic, I'm like, Vic was phenomenal. played two seasons. So Cam Newton would have no place on your Rushmore because it was really one year. Yeah, no, I said, like, I'm looking for three, four-year guys who racked up. I mean, Tebow was in in New York three straight years. You know, guys like that.
1: You know what? One of the guys you did have... Didn't have, like, that long of a career either. You know, Adrian Peterson had a fantastic freshman year.
0: Yeah, he, he played three years, though. He missed you a, know how many yards
1: Adrian Peterson rushed for in his career still? I'm going to say, like, 4,500. Just over 4,000. I mean, he had a yeah. huge freshman year. And then the next two years, it was like he had 2,000 yards, 2,100 yards in, in two seasons. He got hurt toward the end of the third he year. He did, but, I mean, this kind of... Goes against some of the, I mean, you should have Ricky Williams over Adrian Peterson.
0: And I definitely strongly considered Ricky Williams for sure.
1: Okay, I'm not trying to imply you're a hypocrite, but take it for
0: Adrian Peterson felt like more of a game changer. Like, again, as I said the other day, no true freshman had finished that high in the Heisman before, and no true freshman has finished that high in the Heisman since. Like, it was like you're watching a rare, like, if we were doing this exercise and it included 1980, you would have Herschel Walker.
1: How about I get to ask you a question you don't get to ask me it back? Fine. <laughs> Who is the most overrated player in retrospect that uh, has come along in the last 10 years where you're like, I can't believe this guy? Uh, just go 10 years.
0: You, you love to ask these questions on the spot. It's like, am I really supposed to just kind of have this encyclopedic recall of the last 10 years and, and just be able to pull one
1: out right there? I have a name in my well, head.
0: Go ahead and answer it.
1: Okay. Which of these players do you think, in retrospect, people look back and go, I cannot believe this guy got all the hardware he got? Okay. A, Manti Teo. hmm B, Jason White. C, Eric Crouch.
0: Well, clearly you want me to answer B or C.
1: and um... <laughs> No, I honestly don't know why. I mean, maybe, maybe you t- take tests better than me. I don't understand why you got that logic.
0: It's not Manti Te'o. I think Manti Te'o's career has been re- legacy has been rewritten because of the uh, Lene Kakua thing. Um, Jason White, you could look at easily and say, like, I mean, he never he never even yeah, Jason like, White was the,
1: was basically falling apart by the time I felt like right. he got out of you know out of out of Oklahoma.
0: But he took him to two straight national title games, Heisman. I, there were probably other quarterbacks that played during that time that were more far more talented. But I, I'm not saying he. Was over high I think you could say it about Eric Crouch. I think Eric Crouch was like I have a problem to this day that a quarterback won the Heisman who couldn't throw the ball. Literally could not throw it. Like was a forty three percent
1: passer. Jason White's like, last two years at Oklahoma, eighty five touchdowns, nineteen picks. That's pretty strong.
0: I was at an event with him about four years ago. Uh, he was it was like a event Heisman related event where he was doing signings uh, before a big Oklahoma game. I mean, when you win the Heisman, you basically can just milk that for the rest of your life. Like, he, he'll be doing autograph signings for the rest of his life in Oklahoma. I thought when you—before when you, you gave your own answers, I thought you were looking to me to say, like, uh, Chris Ricks or
1: Reggie Ball or somebody like that. You know, unfortunately for both of those guys— It's almost like they become punchline. Right. You know, I mean, Richie Ball must not have been too bad if he could have started for four years. And Chris Ricks definitely had, you know.
0: Do you remember how much grief Chris
1: Leak took during his career? Oh, yeah, plenty. But, I mean, he has a national title ring, and he was the quarterback for the bulk of those. And he was the MVP in that national championship game, if I'm not mistaken.
0: But up until that game, it was he was as hyped a quarterback recruit as there was at that time. And there was this perception that he was a big flop. Um, In fact, when Tebow started playing as a freshman, I remember there was one game where the fans booed that Leak came back on the field. I'm not saying he was uh, Aaron Rodgers, but I I felt like he's the one in hindsight that got too much flack.
1: Okay, Stu, we will get back to the podcast in a second, but now it is time for a word or two from our lovely sponsors. New
0: sponsors. We're excited about it.
1: Yes. All right, Stu. Now, I know we've talked about this before. This is something neither one of us loves to do, but you know what? As guys, we have to do it every once in a while, certainly when we do TV. And that is shave our faces. For decades, Stu, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of people like me and you. Not anymore, Stu. Harry's knew there was only one way to ensure quality. So they bought their own factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to guys like you and me, Stu, over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Only $2 a blade compared to the four or more you'll pay at the drugstore. That's quite a bargain, Stu.
0: I know, it's great.
1: Yes, let me tell you about Harry's razors. Harry's razors include everything you'd need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, just the way you would like it if you were an engineer, Stu. You would have drawn it up this way five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover.
0: So Harry's was nice enough to send us some product. And Bruce, what do you find that you love most so far about shaving with Harry's?
1: Uh, I like the smell of the shaving cream. The other thing I like is, and this goes whenever I shave, is usually because it's not everyday thing. Every once in a while, I'll just walk around and just kind of, with the back of my hand, rub the side of my face and feel how smooth it is. Harry's has come through for me on that front, so I thank them for that. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right, Stu. Just cover shipping when you sign up. Plus, as a special offer to fans of the Audible, go to harry's.com right now and enter code Audible at checkout to get a post shave bomb, which will also be free. That's harry's.com code audible do it now
0: so you mentioned like shaving is something we all have to do well we also all have to eat and i don't know about you but with our family with everybody working with a small child and it's hard to come up with dinner every night and so we are very excited to have on as a sponsor blue apron now you know not all ingredients In a recipe, are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it is important to know where your food comes from. And with Blue Apron, for less than $10 per person per meal, they will deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Choose from a variety of new recipes each week, or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. That's amazing. I'm constantly eating the same thing over and over again. Can you imagine a whole year not eating the same meal twice? Plus, they customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Blue Apron's freshness guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. So, check out these, this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com audible. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So, don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash audible. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. All right, Stu, I know you like to think of yourself as a global man, and the podcast has shockingly a lot of global outreach.
0: This is easily, I think, the most exotic one we've gotten so far.
1: Yes. Hi, guys. Huge fan of the podcast. My name is Tatenda. I live in Zimbabwe, and I'm a huge fan of your podcast. Thank you very much. I'm also a Michigan fan, and I know Stu looks down on my Wolverine. Not true. But there's nothing I can do about that. My question is this. He actually has two. After the 2016 season, where would you rank Jim Harbaugh among top college coaches? And two, how long do you think it'll take for Harbaugh to win a national title? Thanks. Um, So we we dabbled in this one a little bit.
0: Yeah, I believe we used the phrase Holy Trinity, right? Saban Meyer
1: Harbaugh. Uh, I still hold that that would be in that order, but uh, has Dabo Sweeney, after first taking Clemson to the national title game last year and barely losing, and then winning it against a very convincing number one, Alabama, has he cracked that top three? I uh,
0: Maybe it's recency bias, maybe I'm getting too caught up in the moment, but yes, I think he deserves to be to slide into that number three spot ahead of Harbaugh. Because, A, Harbaugh has not won a college football national championship or even played for one. Yes, I realize that was probably not feasible at Stanford given what he had to inherit. Um, I, I just, I think as we've covered this so much, we covered him in the in the national championship so much, I just have so much appreciation for how hard that was, not just to win the game or win this season, but the eight-year climb, you know. Guys like Meyer and, and Saban, they come into these like kind of blue-blood programs that, for whatever reason, had a little bit of a down period, and like within two years, they're winning a national championship. Clemson hadn't come anywhere close to that since 1981, and he was a first-time head coach who'd never even been a coordinator. And little by little, he built them up. You know, They get the Orange Bowl, but they give up 70 points. They uh, get back to the Orange Bowl and beat Ohio State, but that's not for a playoff or a championship. And then the next thing you know, they're playing Alabama two straight years in that championship. They win one. To me, that's as impressive, if not more so, than anything Harbaugh's done.
1: Fair. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of torn on it. I got to admit, and this is probably not the right way to do it, but I do factor in some of what Jim Harbaugh did getting the, getting the 49ers as bad as they've been, as much as they've been spinning their wheels to a Super Bowl. Now, he didn't win it, but he got them on the brink of it. And the, that franchise has been in disarray since he left. Uh, I give him a ton of credit and this does count on his column. Stanford was arguably the worst power five or power six program at the time that he took over and he turned it into a powerhouse within four years. Not only did he win as a 40 plus point underdog at USC early on, but he also, he left there and he won a BCS bowl and the program was in good stead and you know, you look at his staff, and his staff was loaded with guys who become head coaches. He did invigorate Michigan. I, I think it's close, but I still lean to Harbaugh at three.
0: No, I, that's fine. But let me ask you something. Like, I don't disagree, right? You can't ignore time with the 49ers. That was—did he go to three NFC Championship games? He lost the first year, went to the Super Bowl the second, lost the third one. Um, like, that's, you know, probably ultimate proof of any of how great a football coach he is. But if that's the case, why does Saban not get discounted for his time with the Dolphins?
1: I mean, it was it was one year, two years, two years. It's such a fraction. I mean, the
0: guy. Does Chip Kelly's time at Oregon get diminished at all by the fact that he's failed at two NFL
1: teams? Uh, it would. I, I'm sure if you're an NFL GM, it shouldn't. If you're a college AD,
0: right? Because it hasn't. Like everybody, you know, you name the college fan right now, they'd love to have Chip Kelly as their coach. So I'm just saying it seems to be that we reward the ones who are successful. That enhances their reputation as a coach. And then the ones who don't do well, we just say, well, you know, they're still a great college coach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, again, you're right. J- Jim Harbaugh, three consecutive NFC title game appearances in the first three years. I mean, that's 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 pretty, pretty impressive. In terms of
0: the second part, how long does it take for him to win a national championship? You know, I feel like the window was there this seasonal, you know, I mean, they came, they were the end of the Ohio state game, couldn't have been any closer. And if they win that game uh, and then win the big 10 title game, they're going to the playoff. So the opportunity was there this year and now you lose everybody, you know, other than the quarterback, everybody's gone is gone. And so I don't think they're going to the national championship this next year. I think you would agree. So then the question is, is he already recruiting at a level whereby the next year, then they're in that position or is it going to be longer than that?
1: Uh, do you think Jim Harbaugh ever wins a national title at Michigan?
0: Honestly, (laughs) just by the, the, like kind of a, a probability approach to it, I think you would be safer to say no, because like you said earlier, so few teams and coaches do it right. Like to say, like, it's just a certainty that he'll win a national championship. Like, that would put him on a very, very small list of coaches in the next few years. I mean, we're
1: saying he's one of the three best, four best coaches in college. We also
0: don't know how long he'll be at Michigan. He's never been anywhere for that long. So, um, my hunch would be to say no, not that I don't think he can do it, right? So, there's a big difference. It's not me saying I don't think he's capable of winning a national championship. I just think that all the stars have to align, and he has to do it, and he has to stay long enough to do it. Let me ask you this. What happens first? Jim Harbaugh wins a national championship at Michigan. Or Urban Meyer wins another one at Ohio State.
1: My gut is Urban Meyer wins another one.
0: Yeah, because as close as that game was, I don't think the programs are that close yet. I mean, you look at the number of guys Ohio State's continuing
1: to turn out at the NFL. You look at the recruiting class. Michigan may have a dozen guys drafted this year, and Ohio State just just got shut out and got beat thirty four to nothing.
0: But I just you know I just saw um, your guy, our guy, Daniel Jeremiah's top fifty draft prospects, and two Ohio State players are number two and three, uh, Hooker and Lattimore. Jabril Peppers, who's the most heralded guy from this team, this past team, was like 32nd. And then um, in recruiting, you know, Ohio State is, what did I just see? That they had like nine early enrollees and five of them were five stars. I I probably should have gotten that exact stat before I just spouted that off. Um, It was something
1: like that, but...
0: You know they're recruiting at the Alabama level. Michigan's recruiting very well. They're not quite at that level yet. So
1: here's the question, Stu: We're going to see if they're developing at the Alabama level. True. There's a lot of guys who went in there who've been, who who are big, high recruits. I mean, the question you would have is: Look, have any of those receivers come out and look like they've been? You know, Mike Thomas was a really good player.
0: Well, it's not always the guy, right? Like, I think Malik Hooker was three stars. Like, it doesn't always necessarily go in
1: order. Uh, yeah, Darren Lee was a three-star guy. It's not
0: always that the, guy, the, the that the highest-rated ones in the class turn out to be, you know what I mean? Like, they're, there's, they're recruiting good players one through 25, and even the guys in the lower range of that have a chance to be good. But, you know, I don't think there's any question. Harbaugh did a, and his staff did a great job developing, uh, in particular, The, uh, those receivers, the defensive line, the secondary, you know, they they got the absolute most out of that team probably, you know, maybe you would hope if you're a Michigan fan that, you know, after going 10 and three the year before that this team would have had a better record, but I don't think there's any question it was a better team.
1: By the way, you are correct. Uh, Malik Hooker was the number 52 rated safety in the country, a three-star recruit out of Newcastle, Pennsylvania.
0: I mean, Urban Meyer himself has said he had never had an inclination, hunch that he would become the best safety in the country.
1: Yeah, there are highest ranked recruits in that class. Raquan McMillan had a good career, but he probably won't. I guess this will be like a second or third rounder. Really? Yeah. I
0: okay, you might know that better. I thought I assumed he was like mid first round.
1: I don't think so. He's not considered the the prospect. Ruben Foster is um, as a linebacker. Uh, so the rest of the guys in this class who are pretty highly rated, you know, who's, who's a really good player. And I remember I, we had him on our, we had urban on our signing day when I was at CBS and he talked about this guy and he was one of the lowest rated kids in the class. And he's trying to be a good player Was Sam Hubbard mm-hmm. who had played all over the place was a lacrosse guy. Um, and so sometimes that happens, you know, where some of these other guys, you know, turn out to be, turn out to be really special.
0: And then the flip side of that is uh, Nick Bosa was a five-star and, you know, playing as, you know, he was already one of their top pass rushers by the end of the season.
1: Yeah. I think when it, you have a case like that with a kid who actually plays at that St. Thomas program, you know, you're seeing him play against kids at the highest level and, and everything. Um, hey, just while we're at it. Um, so we're talking about, this is Urban's class. that. What's interesting is... I
0: think this Michigan fan in Zimbabwe is going to kill us for having turned his Michigan question I into... I know, a I'm stance. sorry.
1: Uh, so if you look back the year before that, the two highest ranked recruits that that Urban signed in that class, you want to guess who they were? Is it uh, Von Bell? Von Bell was a good recruit. He was a five-star guy. So he would be one of the two five-star guys. Can you name the other five-star? Uh, go ahead. Mike Mitchell. See, that's a perfect
0: example, right? That class... When they won the national title, it was all about the 2013 class. And and there were so many stars that came out of that, and he wasn't one of them. So why don't you just bring this full circle real quick. How long do you think it will take for Harbaugh to win a national championship?
1: Uh, If it happens, I think it will happen... In the next two years? Yeah, I do. I mean, he's still got pretty good players there. I don't think they have no chance for next year. I think they, they could have a shot.
0: Okay. Well, I would agree with you. I would say if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the next couple years, but you know, I don't no think Jim Harbaugh
1: will be there 5 years from now. He may be there for 5 years. I don't think he's going to be there for for like 8 years. Great. Get ready for the tweets from the Michigan fans. Why? Cuz I'm not saying the guy's not going to not going to die as head coach at Michigan.
0: Yes, for exactly. They they all believe he's there forever. Maybe uh, he will.
1: I, I, I think he's gonna be there for a while. I just d I, I don't think it's a stretch to think he's gonna stay somewhere for like a full, you know, close to a decade.
0: All right. Greg Scuria, Stu, I'm a huge fan, but it's incredibly frustrating as an LSU fan to see Leonard Fournette lumped in with Christian McCaffrey as quote, leaving their teams and beginning their professional careers. The two are not in the same situation. Fournette was injured all year and missed the last game of the season. He was never characterized as, quote, skipping the game until after the McCaffrey decision. If it was not for McCaffrey, do you think there would have been any backlash
1: against Fournette's decision? Uh, I think there would have been some backlash because we're in a backlash climate of people getting pissed off about everything. There's a lot of talking head shows. There's a lot of people who pop off on social media and... You know, I think sometimes there are people who don't know the details and just kind of want to go, you know, run and, you know, because of an agenda or whatever they have to make a story, but also to try to become part of the story. So, yes.
0: But I do think in general, I think he's right. I think that when at the time that the Fournette news, I I don't think people had grasped yet that it meant he was just plain done at LSU. I think it was just seen as like, Normal injury news, like, well, he's not healthy enough to play in the game, so he's not going to play in the game. Not like he's not healthy enough playing the game and he's done.
1: Well, I think what had helped Fournette's story a little bit was the LSU staff and the LSU teammates were probably more vocal about him as a leader and how tough he was and some of those other things, which tried to counteract some of the other, you know, the other aspects of it. Um, what also I think factored into the Fournette story on the other side was people look at Leonard Fournette as a, in the very rare era of, if there's going to be a first round running back, he's that guy. I'm not sure anybody really kind of locks in at Christian McCaffrey in that same way.
0: I think that one player is one thing. Once McCaffrey did it, it became a trend and it became a story for all of us to, um, you know, debate and discuss. So, Would he have received no backlash? I don't know about that. But he did immediately become part of a larger story that wouldn't have existed if not for McCaffrey.
1: Next. Oh, I don't know if I like this question, Stu. (laughs) I'm
0: just seeing this now. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) This question is from Ryan. Ryan. Hey, Phil and Stu. (laughs) Phil. What are your thoughts on Phil Bennett, the new DC of Arizona State? I'm going to give Ryan the benefit of the doubt. And thinks yeah That was a
0: little bit of a slip because of the question he was asking. Yes. You, you do kind of look like a Phil.
1: I don't look like a Phil. No, what looks like a Phil, man? I, how many Phil's do you even know?
0: I know a few Phil's, and I'm saying you could pass for one. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, if you put aside the Baylor controversy aspect of it, Phil Bennett's a good DC. He's had good success wherever he's been, and um, – Now Todd Graham has a very unique defensive philosophy that's basically like blitz every single play. So I'm not sure how those two fit in, but, you know, I do think he played a very aggressive defense at Baylor. At Baylor, it was very, you know, we're going to take our chances and we're going to give up big plays, but we're also going to sack, get sacks and turnovers. So, yeah, I guess in thinking about it, it does mean a good marriage, but, you know, it's hard for me to get past the Samu Kawachu detail, which was, you know this guy was weeks away from going to trial for rape and he had been off the team for a year and just he's asked asked a question ben has asked a question about his availability and he said oh yeah we're expecting him back what
1: yeah that was unfortunate at best to say the least um part of this hire doesn't entirely shock me either in that uh Phil Bennett's son is on Todd Graham's staff. I think he is a quality control or, or a graduate assistant. He was a former player for Phil when Phil was a head coach at SMU. So there's clearly ties there.
0: Well, the good news for Phil is that, you know, something like what I just mentioned is like a day one story. It's not like it follows you the whole time you're there. And he has the good fortune of going to a program that I think is probably the least covered program in a Power 5 conference. I don't know if there's any program in any – Power Five conference that get, has less media covering on a day-to-day basis than Arizona State.
1: I want to digest that for a minute because that's a pretty big generalization.
0: Well, think about it, but I'll just tell you that. Because I mean,
1: you're talking because there's the, the Suns and correct, the correct. Cardinals and there's so many other It's things. a pro
0: sports market. I could be wrong. The Arizona Republic may be the only newspaper that covers Arizona State.
1: All right. Uh, next question. Bruce and Stu, hypothetically speaking, if the new PAC Pro League is able to successfully launch, begins developing players, and then actually has players drafted by the NFL, do you think it would force the NCAA to begin paying players? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, guys. JT, Gator Nation in Oregon.
0: I don't know how many people have even heard about that, but yes, um, who's backing that? Don Yee. Don Yee, Tom Brady's guy. I'm skeptical just because we have been through this so many of these startup football leagues, and they never get off the ground. But his, I read the article, and his contention is that the mistake those leagues made was trying to compete against the NFL, whereas this is like just literally saying we are going to be a developmental league for the NFL. Uh, I'm going to be honest, NCA people would love if this happens. They would love for the, for this for them to be able to start weeding out some of the guys who clearly don't want to be in college and just want to get paid as soon as possible. So no, I don't think they would. I think it would alleviate, frankly, like Jim Delaney's been big on this. Jim Delaney really is pushing like, you know, the NFL or somebody to start a developmental league to try to take the burden off of them. Like that, we're the ones that have to pay the players. We're we're not a professional league. We're college. If they want to get paid, somebody should start a professional league for them to get paid. I actually think they, they're, they're probably administrators, ADs, presence are all probably hoping this this works now it wouldn't be great for college football fans if some of the best players aren't playing in college football anymore but i don't know if it would have any effect people are going to root for alabama whether or not five of the guys who they would have signed don't end up there
1: yeah i'm with you i think the impact on college football would be much less and i don't think it's going to anything like that is going to drive the ncaa's hands
0: Okay. Stuart and Bruce, David Eisen, I have two questions. First, you guys mocked the hiring of Clay Helton last year. What say you now? He got lucky that he stumbled over a generational QB, or he might actually be a good coach. And secondly, and this is completely unrelated, what's the dress code for covering events like the championship game? Since you're not on camera, is it still suit and tie, or can you guys be comfortable?
1: Okay. So first, I, I, by the way, this is a guy who I think lives near me, and I believe is a lawyer, so he's probably used to... I'd be better at tying ties than both of us are. Um, I feel like I've taken the approach that, especially now that I'm on TV regularly, when I go to games, even if I'm not going to be on TV, that it's important to look the part. And I think you want to be taken seriously. I mean, I think you want to be looked as professional in that regard. So that's my approach to it. When I go somewhere, I feel like I'm representing Fox and I'm certainly representing myself. And so that's the way I want to be seen at this point. When I was younger, I was much more comfortable. I wasn't like where I was a con- wearing concert T-shirts to games, but uh, I might wear a dress shirt. I might not. I wanted to be comfortable. And now I'm like, you know, I've gotten used to wearing those things and I know how to tie a tie. I think I've told this story. The first time I did college football live for a week, I spent like a couple of hours in the hotel the night before on YouTube, learnt teaching myself how to tie a tie.
0: Really? That late in life, you hadn't not yet learned how to tie a tie?
1: That is sad and true.
0: I'm not great at it. I remember the first year at Fox, Joel Clatt, who is the man with ties. I would have him tie the tie, or sometimes the wardrobe people tie it before you even put it on. But uh, so I've actually noticed that college press boxes have become dressier. It used to be just like the, one of the slobbiest places you could walk into. But not even just not just for the championship game. I just think in general, guy, you know why everybody has to be on camera now? Like even you know whether you're us or beat writer at a paper like everybody's outlet wants them to go do uh periscope or facebook live or a video for the newspaper afterwards so everybody's got to dress nicer and um i'm not a tie guy but i'll do jacket button down and and jeans no we didn't actually answer the usc part of the question uh clay helton uh i think it's too early to say i mean give him all the credit in the world it was a phenomenal job getting that team turned around this year and eventually going with Sam Darnold and turning him into what he is, but um, I'll be very curious to see how they do this coming year for a couple of reasons. One, I think Adoree Jackson, beyond just the on field, is just such a tremendous leader for that program the last few years, and he's going to be a tough one to replace. Obviously, Juju Smith Schuster is tough to replace as a receiver, but they've got talent. I'd just be interesting. It's a, it's kind of a changing of the
1: guard. USC, the schedules came out for the Pac-12. USC, who's probably going to be preseason top five, maybe preseason top three, uh, especially the way they finished last year. They have the whole schedule. It's for the first time in about a decade where they have no bye week.
0: It's actually the first time since
1: 1995. Two decades. Thank you. So,
0: You know what's interesting about that is somebody tweeted to me that they felt they had an unfair advantage because they'll have a week to rest before the championship game. Um, I don't think that's how USC looks at it.
1: No, it's the, you know, what will your record be like when you get to that game? All four teams that went to the playoff this year all had bye weeks. And in addition to bye weeks, uh, both Clemson and Alabama, the teams that played in the title game, in addition to bye weeks, had games against FCS opponents. USC has neither a bye week or an FCS opponent on their schedule.
0: Not only that, do you realize that USC's non-conference schedule next year and look, and I feel like this is the second year in a row that we're talking about them like this, like what a brutal schedule they have. But no, this really is. Their three non-conference games are Texas, Notre Dame, and Western Michigan. Now, I don't think that Western Michigan game will be that hard for them. But Western Michigan is coming off thirteen and zero, but there's no, there's nobody, literally nobody on that schedule that you'd say, well, they don't have to show up for that one.
1: Well, that's true, but let's not – I mean, that's going to prompt a lot of cynicism. People are going, you know, two of those teams didn't even go to bowl games last year still.
0: Correct, but I think we would – let's just pull up the comparable example here. If you were a national championship contender, which non-conference schedule would you rather have, that one, or Alabama's, where they start with Florida State, and then the other ones are Fresno State, Colorado State, and – I can't believe this is real – Mercer. Alabama's going to play Mercer in a football game.
1: Stu, I would rather take the one that doesn't have Florida State. In it. True. Because you have a better chance of losing to Florida State if you're a good team than you do to losing to you know Notre Dame. I don't think it will be pre- preseason top 25. I do think Texas will be.
0: I just think that I, I'd rather not have the wear and tear of that USC schedule with no bye week. And by the way, Colorado State, I think, is every bit as good
1: as Western Michigan. Alabama's going to
0: have breaks. In, I mean, they're going to play Florida State, and then they're going to have a week to recover because they're going to play Fresno State and be up, you know, 30 to nothing at halftime. Look, uh, you know, it's, it's a bad break for USC to not have a bye week. The way the schedule works in
1: the Pac-12, somebody always gets that. Well, the part that's the head-scratcher is, you know, you could never imagine another Power 5 league doing that to their flagship.
0: Oh, now you're going to hear from Dan Rubenstein. Who? Dan Rubenstein. Now that you've mentioned, you've said that USC is the flagship school.
1: Look, I I love Dan, but Dan's an idiot if he doesn't think (laughs) USC is the (laughs) flagship school.
0: USC is the glamour program in the Pac 12. There's no question about it. So there's two ways of looking at that. Would the FCC screw over Alabama like that? Absolutely not. But should the Pac 12 be playing favorites? You know, somebody, Arizona had this two years ago. I remember Rich Rod being. Very upset about it. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know who had it this year. And by the way, one of the reasons they have to do this is because of the inflexibility of USC and Stanford always playing, uh, one of them always playing Notre Dame at the end of the season, which means that somebody can't play a conference game that week. So um, it actually kind of makes sense that USC would be one of the ones that has to do that. We are running out of time. As always, if you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And send your emails. It's the off season. We need your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.